Well, I am super excited to be here with you guys tonight. The, uh, the other side of, the other part of that story of getting thrown out of the village was by God's grace, uh, either the next day or two days later, I forget when it was, uh, we had the privilege of seeing uh, seven uh, Muslim men come to faith in Christ and be baptized. And, uh, and it was, uh, they baptized as many people on that day as they often baptize in a year or two of ministry uh, in that place. And, uh, you know, if you've ever seen a baptism service before, uh, you know, we, we often ask people these questions like, uh, you know, do you believe that Jesus is who he says he is and, and did what he said he did, some variation on that, and they confess Jesus is Lord. Well, what they would say is, do you believe that, uh, that, uh, that God is the creator and the redeemer? Yes, I do. Uh, do you believe that uh, Jesus died on the cross for your sins and rose again on the third day? Yes, I do. Uh, do you realize that by saying that you might lose your family? I do. You might lose your job. I do. You realize they might kill you if you're baptized. I do. What's your confession? Jesus Christ is Lord. Then they're baptized. So it was a uh, it was a powerful day. Well, I want to begin this first talk with my favorite quote about history, uh, which comes from C.S. Lewis. And this is from a sermon that he preached, actually, a chapel service in 1939. Uh, it'll be the only quote I give you like this, so bear with me for just a minute. Most of all, perhaps, we need intimate knowledge of the past. Not that the past has any magic about it, but because we cannot study the future, and yet need something to set against the present, to remind us that the basic assumptions have been quite different in different periods, and that much which seems certain to the uneducated is merely temporary fashion. A man who has lived in many places is not likely to be deceived by the local errors of his native village. The scholar, the historian, has lived in many times and is therefore in some degree immune from the great cataract of nonsense that pours from the press and the microphone of his own age. I love that. What Lewis is saying is the person who knows history isn't as easily bamboozled by the passing fads of the day. Now, since we're all evangelicals here, uh, I want to begin with uh, sharing a little bit of my testimony as a way to set this up. When I was 18 years old, the Lord saved me and uh, almost at the same time uh, called me to vocational gospel ministry. And for several years, I aspired to be a full-time pastor, uh, even began to serve on church staffs and do uh, interim pastoral ministry uh, while I was in college. However, during my senior year of college, I became convinced that the Lord was leading me to the ministry of theological education, and specifically that he was leading me to teach church history. And by God's grace, six years after I first began to sense that pull toward the ministry of teaching, I stepped into the classroom and stood before a class of 57 college students at Southeastern uh, and taught them, and that was eight years ago. Though I believe theological education is a worthy calling in and of itself, uh, in my own life, my desire to be a pastor never waned. Uh, it was always a both-and sort of thing. And so uh, I also serve as one of the pastors uh, at our church, uh, First Baptist Church of Durham, North Carolina. So I'm a church historian by day and a pastor by night and other days and living in the shadow of those two callings has convinced me that church history is a valuable tool 
for helping believers to grow in their spiritual walks and helping pastors in particular to uh, shepherd the flock that God's entrusted to them more faithfully. And so what I want to do in this first talk uh, is to talk uh, about how it is church history functions in that way for us as believers. So I've titled the talk, Standing on Shoulders, uh, Learning from Church History, which is also kind of the general theme for our time together tonight. And what I want to argue is that church history is a useful resource for your spiritual formation as a follower of Christ, and ultimately for the faithfulness and fruitfulness of your church uh, as you seek to be what God has called you to be here at Christ Covenant. So I want to begin by briefly discussing the importance of history for the Christian faith. Christians, in general, ought to be keenly interested in studying the past, since the very truth of the Judeo-Christian tradition is dependent upon certain historical facts being true. Some religious traditions are ahistorical. And what I mean by that is whether or not the events they talk about in their sacred writings really happened doesn't actually have any effect on the religion itself. This is true of almost all of the Eastern religions, uh, whether it's you know, Confucianism or Buddhism or Hinduism. Uh, they're all worldviews and ethical systems that developed over uh, millennia. Uh, the way of life today is more important than whether or not uh, their backstory is true. Uh, we could find out tomorrow that, uh, that the Buddha never lived, and it would have no effect on Buddhism whatsoever. But that's not true of the Christian religion. Uh, our faith is at root a historical faith that emerged out of an earlier historical faith, Judaism. And Christianity is grounded in these events that we believe were real historical occurrences. We believe they really happened. For example, we believe that at a particular point in history, Abraham migrated from Ur to Palestine. That Moses led the Israelites out of Egyptian slavery. That David became the king of Israel. That Isaiah and Jeremiah served as prophets. That Jesus of Nazareth preached and was crucified. And that Paul established churches all over the Roman Empire. We think those things really happened. And furthermore, we believe that the miracles described in the Bible, the wonderful things, the miraculous things, are just as historically accurate as the everyday mundane things. So we believe that, uh, in fact, uh, the most important events in the Scripture are the miraculous events, especially the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ and his bodily resurrection from the dead. And we believe that those things really happened in exactly the same way that it's really true that David was king of Israel. And it's really true that Paul preached all over the world during his time, the Roman Empire in particular. So when Christians recite the Apostles' Creed, we confess that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell, and on the third day, he rose from the dead. And there's a lot of debate over what that descended into hell part means, but the point is, uh, we believe Pontius Pilate was real. And during that time, people, uh, time period, Jesus uh, really was crucified, dead, and buried. And after being dead for parts of three days, he really did come back to life. And the truthfulness of Christianity depends upon the validity of, 
of those historical facts that are recorded in the Bible. If they didn't happen, we're in a lot of trouble. One of the reasons I teach church history is because I believe the same God who was at work in those historical events in the scriptures is still at work and has been at work in every moment in time since the Bible was written. Friends, if we believe that biblical history matters, if we believe that it matters that David was real and it matters that Jesus was real and it matters that Jesus died on the cross and rose again, then church history ought to matter for us as well. The same God who was worshipped by Moses was the same God who was worshipped by Paul and worshipped by Augustine and worshipped by Luther and worshipped by John Wesley, and worshipped by Amy Carmichael, and worshipped by me, and worshipped by you, and worshipped by every believer who has ever lived in every place, in every part of time. Christianity is a historical faith, and history matters for Christianity. I also want to briefly discuss the relationship between sanctification, our growth in grace, our becoming more like Christ, and what the Apostles' Creed calls the communion of saints. I have a mantra that I drill into members of our church and the students I teach at Southeastern Seminary. Sanctification is a community project. Sanctification is a community project. And this is what I mean by that. While each one of us will one day stand before the Lord Jesus Christ as individuals and give an account for our individual lives, our growth in godliness depends upon being surrounded by a community of disciples who in the spirit of Hebrews 10.24 spur each other on to love and good deeds. Uh, there's no place in Christianity for a lone ranger sort of faith, right? You should love God more. You should love his people more. You should be more burdened for the lost. You should care more for the needy because of your relationship with brothers and sisters in Christ. And especially your relationship with brothers and sisters in Christ who are part of your local church. Well, in a similar way, sanctification is a community project across the centuries as we learn from the communion of saints. Now, evangelicals don't talk a lot about the communion of saints, but this phrase simply refers to the spiritual union of all the members of the church universal, whether they are still living or whether they are now dead and they've gone on to heaven. Each of us, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, is a part of the communion of saints. But part of what it means to stand on the shoulders of those who've gone before us is to learn how to better walk with Christ specifically from the example of dead saints. And to be clear, when I use the word saint, I'm not using that word like our Catholic friends use it to speak of super-Christians or something like that. Uh, I mean saints like the apostles Paul and John and saints like you and me. In the Bible, we are all saints because we've all, as Christians, been set apart to be holy. We will all one day be fully glorified when we get to the next life. And we're not only freed from the power of sin, but we're freed from the presence of sin as well. And that's the day that we're longing for. Well, along the way to that final destination of our perfect holiness, our spiritual growth can be aided 
by learning from those members of the communion of saints who have already gone on to their eternal reward. And I think intuitively, each of us already knows that. This is why some of you are still blessed today by the prayers you remember your godly grandmother praying over you many years ago. It's the reason why some of you are still being equipped today by your memory of sermons that a former pastor from bygone days preached and now he's with the Lord. And we're already used to thinking about that way with our immediate ancestors, our parents and former pastors and mentors who've passed on, who continue to shape us today. What I'm asking you to do tonight is to reach back even further. This is the same, uh, this is what uh, we should think of those who have gone before us more than a generation or two as aiding us in the same way as those who've gone before us in recent years. This is why it's spiritually helpful to read Augustine's Confessions or Jonathan Edwards' Charity and Its Fruits. This is why it's spiritually helpful to read sermons by John Chrysostom in the early church or Charles Spurgeon in the 19th century. This is why it's spiritually helpful to sing hymns by Isaac Watts and Charles Wesley. This is why it's spiritually helpful to read the personal letters of men like Samuel Rutherford and Robert Murray Machane. This is why it's spiritually helpful to read an edifying biography of John Wesley or Hannah Moore. This is why it's spiritually helpful to listen to biographical sermons by John Piper on Athanasius or by uh, Danny Aiken on Jim Elliott or by Tom Mercer on some of the figures that he's given biographical sermons on over the years. I've listened to a couple of those sermons over the years. The reason why I'm with you tonight is to help you think about specific ways you can grow in your faith and your church can grow in ministry faithfulness by learning from this communion of saints. Not just grandma and godly former pastors, but saints from all of church history. Saints who in many cases spoke other languages and lived in other nations, uh, but being dead, they yet live uh, because they're united with Christ uh, and they continue to minister to us through the things that they have left behind for us. And so what I want to do for most of my time in this first talk is I want to suggest four spiritual lessons that we can learn from church history. Now, I want to give a caveat as before I go much further. I admit that every one of these four lessons we can also learn from other sources. We can learn them from each other. We can especially learn them from the Bible. But I believe that these four lessons are also particularly helpful, uh, the way church history communicates them to us. Uh, thinking back to what C.S. Lewis uh, said in that quote, uh, whenever we think about these lessons taking the long view of church history, uh, it gets us out of the myopia of the now. Yeah, it gets us out of being focused on our own time and our own ways and, and seeing that God's ways are bigger and that we have much to learn uh, from those who are uh, different from us in some ways and yet share uh, this common union with Christ uh, through faith in his finished work. So lesson number one, directly related to that, we are each of us part of something bigger than ourselves. We are each of us part of something bigger than ourselves. Most Christians have at most maybe three generations worth of Christian memory. Even if you were raised in a Christian home, there's a tendency to think that the Holy Spirit inspired the Bible 
occasionally raised up a leading figure, you know, an Augustine here, a Jonathan Edwards there, and then basically jumped to a generation or two before your own Christian experiences. Uh, maybe the time when your church was founded, or maybe the time whenever uh, your grandparents were alive. The church historian Timothy George has a great saying. Uh, there was 2,000 years of Christian history in between Jesus and your grandma. And we're not always familiar with that 2,000 years of Christian history. Studying church history is a reminder that each one of us, each of our families, this local church, uh, even entire denominational traditions are part of something bigger than ourselves. The main point of the Bible is the good news that God is redeeming a people for himself and will ultimately bring renewal to the entire created order through the perfect life, sacrificial death, and victorious resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? He lived the life we ought to live, but don't. He died the death we deserve to die, but don't have to. He was raised again with the promise that everyone who believes in him will be forgiven of their sins, adopted into God's family, and be given eternal life and spend that life one day with him for all eternity in a glorified new heavens and new earth. This is the good news. This is the gospel. And it's developed over a grand biblical drama that moves from Genesis to Revelation and unfolds in five progressive acts from creation to fall to promise to redemption to consummation. Well, church history lives between the times of redemption and consummation. Church history is the story of God and his people after the death of the apostles to that day when Jesus returns to claim his inheritance. If Jesus comes back tomorrow, each one of us have still been a part of church history because tomorrow means that today is the past. And history is speaking of the past. Your life matters, and my life matters. You're created in God's image, and if you're a believer, you're an adopted child of the Lord of the universe. Your church matters. You're a community of disciples who are following Jesus Christ together through your worship and your witness. But when we take the long view that's afforded to us by church history, we see that you and your church are also but a brief moment in a much larger story that began with creation and will end one day with new creation. Church history is your spiritual family heritage. The saints of old are your spiritual genealogy. Their God is your God. Their stories are your stories. We are each of us, and your church as a whole is part of something bigger than ourselves, right? Something bigger than yourselves. When we take the long view, we see where we really stand in God's economy, a beloved child of the king, but a moment in time, and part of something much bigger than ourselves that one day will cover the entire earth. But we'll talk more about that in my next talk. Lesson two. Only Jesus will never let us down. Only Jesus will never let us down. How many of you have ever heard the phrase hero worship before? You know, and I'm talking about hero worship. 
Uh, according to Merriam-Webster's dictionary, hero worship is defined as, quote, foolish or excessive adulation of an individual. When we start studying church history, we're often tempted in one of two different directions. To either become hero worshipers who uncritically whitewash the great heroes of the faith and, and treat them as if uh, they hardly ever did anything wrong. Or, number two, to become cynical towards the things of God because of the sins and failures of the saints of old. I don't know if you remember this or not. I'm not sure how many of you are uh, savvy to what's happening on the internet in the evangelical world. But a couple of years ago, there was a flap among evangelicals uh, when the reformed hip-hop artist Propaganda recorded a song titled Precious Puritans. Anybody remember that? The song points out that great as the Puritans are, they ought not to be uncritically adored by especially white Christians because many of the Puritans were slaveholders and even those who were not defended people's rights to own slaves. Now, some thoughtful folks agreed with the argument of that song. Other insightful brothers publicly pushed back a little bit against the song. I don't want to really get into the debate tonight. I just want to say as a church historian, I resonated very much with the controversy. I spend most of my time teaching and writing about some of the most well-known figures in the history of Christianity. Historical integrity, as well as a strong view of human depravity, compels me to not only talk about the good things these men and women said and did, but also their shortcomings. Origen, the greatest theologian of the early church, castrated himself. Cyril of Alexandria, the great defender of the deity of Christ in the early church, was a thug. It's a long story there. We can talk about that later. Martin Luther grew to be anti-Semitic in his later years. A group of Anabaptist anarchists took over the city of Munster. Calvin approved of Servetus being burned at the stake. New England Puritans persecuted religious dissenters. Antebellum evangelicals owned slaves. Karl Barth probably had a long-term affair with his secretary. Most southern evangelicals in the mid-20th century were segregationists. Martin Luther King Jr. plagiarized portions of his dissertation and cheated on his wife. The list could go on and on. The point isn't to talk about all the bad things that heroes of the faith did. The point is to be reminded from church history that only Jesus will never let us down. Every single person here knows that your pastor, your Christian spouses and children, your godliest friends, your favorite radio or internet preacher are all still sinners who will eventually disappoint you. And deep down, you know that you are a sinner. Even now, as a believer, you are a sinner who from time to time disappoints your Christian friends and family when you say and do sinful things. Well, friends, the same thing is true of the saints of old. They sometimes did epically bad things. Because like you, they were sinners who made all kinds of compromises with the spirits of their ages. Knowing this should not lead us to despair. God is in control and his eternal purposes are being accomplished through sinful disciples. Like you and like me 
and like Martin Luther and John Wesley and Amy Carmichael. This has always been the case. Think back to the Bible. Abraham was a liar. Jacob was a cheater. David was an adulterer. Peter was ethnocentric. John Mark was a coward. And yet, God's purposes moved forward. Friends, when you are let down by the heroes of the faith, or for that matter, by your fellow church members, remember, only Jesus will never let us down. Church history is ultimately the story. Let me say this. How many, does anybody here, if, you don't, if you're too godly to admit this, that's okay. I know you, you look like a very godly group. Does anybody here like superheroes? Superhero movies, comic books, whatever the case might be. I'm just saying it's a possibility that I watch a lot of superhero movies because of my kids. Um, yeah, church history, and, and, the, and the real, church history is in part the story of the fact that we're all villains who've been adopted by God and Jesus is the only real superhero. We're not, there's not this menagerie of superheroes out there uh, like our Catholic friends believe about the saints. Uh, the greatest of the saints of old were still villains in their hearts. They were just villains who'd been saved by grace, by the only real superhero who has ever lived. And so when you look at the villains around you, even if they're the villains that are fellow church members with you or the villains that you've given birth to, or the villains that you, and they can be very villainous, right? Or the, the villains that you share your bedroom with. I mean, we look at the villains around you who by God's grace have been saved. Look at the villains from days gone by and take heart that Jesus is the true superhero. He's the one who will never let you down. He's the one who is always obedient for every nanosecond of his life and was that way during his earthly life for you and for your salvation. One of the ways he shows his power is by continuing to build his church on the witness of sinners like you and like me and like Thomas Aquinas and John Newton and William Wilberforce who await that completion of our redemption that will come one day when we are finally glorified in the world that is to come. Only Jesus will never let you down. Lesson three. Theology matters for life and ministry. One day I was talking to a friend of mine who's a fellow church member at First Baptist Durham. We're about the same age, but our stories are different. He was raised in our church and has been a member for nearly 30 years, whereas I joined the church in my mid-20s and have been a member for about a decade I forget the exact context of the conversation, but I remember him noting, perhaps a bit wistfully, that he remembered what our church was like before all the theologians showed up. Now keep in mind, one of the things I do at our church is teach a class on theology, and so this, it hurt a little, I admit that. You know, I hear this sort of language frequently uh, in churches around America. Uh, theology and doctrine... Uh, is treated as something that is unnecessary for the Christian life or as something that's kind of an add-on for the people who care about that sort of thing 
or theology is maybe even treated as something dangerous. You know, if you start thinking too much, you might get filled with that head knowledge and your heart won't be on fire like it used to be. Uh, People don't need more theology, so the saying goes. They just need more Jesus. Well, the problem with this sort of thinking is that it assumes we can have Jesus without any sort of reference to theology. But which Jesus are we talking about? The Jesus of the Mormons, who's the brother of Satan? The Jesus of the New Age gurus, who is a spirit guide to lead us to the God within? The Jesus of the theological liberals, who's a great teacher who leads us into a life of peace and justice and harmony? The Jesus of American pop culture, who winks at materialism and wants to be everybody's best friend? Church history reminds us that every time we use words like God and Jesus and salvation and sin and evangelism and discipleship and worship, we are in fact making theological claims, even if we don't realize it in that moment. For the first 1,800 years of church history, theology was not, for the most part, a professional pursuit for highly trained professors but it was the work of pastors and every thoughtful believer. Theology was often not an academic discipline, and even when it was, believers understood that theology was ultimately about thinking rightly about God unto living rightly before God. Now, to be clear, I am not opposed to professional theologians. I are one. However... Theology is ultimately a ministry of the church, led by pastors and engaged in by all believers. Everyone is a theologian. It's just a question of whether you're a good theologian or a bad theologian, a careful theologian or a sloppy theologian. Church history also reminds us that we don't have to reinvent the wheel, doctrinally speaking, whenever we think about theology. Church history is an aid to us as we interpret scriptures. We sing God in three persons, blessed Trinity, because the church fathers decided that the word Trinity accurately captures the biblical mystery that the Lord is simultaneously one God in three persons. The word isn't in the Bible, but they recognize the teaching is in the Bible. And Trinity is the theological word that has become for us just the word we use to describe the God we worship. We're doing theology. When we talk about justification by faith alone, we're doing that because Martin Luther and others recognized that this was an idea in the writings of Paul especially and others in the New Testament, and that it captured uh, the, the biblical view of salvation that was being downplayed or even rejected by too many pastors and theologians in the late Middle Ages. When we talk about justification, which is a Bible word, we sound sort of like Luther, and that's a good thing. We're learning from one who went before us. When we talk about substitutionary atonement, we do so because John Calvin and others articulated a view of the cross that captured the biblical idea that Jesus actually took the place of sinners and absorbed God's justly deserved wrath on our behalf. That language is just describing what the Bible teaches about what happened at the cross. But it's theological language, and it comes from church history. Now, these are just three examples, but you get the idea. 
theology rightly conceived is simply describing God and his work and what that means for you and me. It's what it means to be a theologian, to think rightly about God and to live rightly before God. And church history reminds us that we do not do theology in a vacuum, but we learn from the saints of old. We build on the best of what they've taught us. We read the scriptures with their help, though we are always willing to disagree with even the best figures from church history when their views don't match up with what we believe the Bible teaches. We don't uncritically learn from them, but we do learn from them. They're conversation partners for us as we try to think rightly about God and as we try to live rightly before God. Theology matters for life and ministry. Lesson four, being the church means being missionaries. In a very real sense, the history of Christianity is the history of Christian missions. Let me give you a brief historical survey in like three or four minutes of the history of Christian missions after the New Testament. In the second century, Christianity spread among families and co-workers as ordinary believers shared the gospel through their networks of friends, especially in cities. By the third century, bishops were sending out formal missionaries to establish churches among pagan peoples within the Roman Empire. By the fourth and fifth centuries, God was raising up foreign missionaries organically like Patrick of Ireland, who was spreading the faith to pagan lands that were on the periphery of the Roman world. Throughout the Middle Ages, popes and patriarchs and monastic orders commissioned missionaries to serve all over Europe, North Africa, and eventually the New World. During the Reformation, Calvin trained missionaries to serve in France and even Brazil, while the Anabaptists recaptured the early church idea that every Christian is a missionary. During the 18th century, the Moravians and then the English Baptists launched the modern missions movement among evangelicals, which has led to the spread of evangelical Christianity to every nation state on earth. More on that in the next talk. During the early 19th century, dozens of mission societies were established for training and supporting missionaries, and then later in the 19th century, faith missionaries raised their own support and trusted that God would provide for them as they moved to China and Africa and South America. In the 20th century, the various miraculous gifts movements, which to be clear, I think are a mixed bag theologically, did often spread evangelical Christianity to new places. It wasn't all weird, just the weird parts. Mission, port, mission boards among evangelical denominations expanded their work in the 20th century. New parachurch ministries were launched with names like Wycliffe Bible Translators and Campus Crusade for Christ and Pioneers and New Tribes Missions and a myriad of other names. And by the 1980s, the emphasis had shifted from sending missionaries to nation states to sending nations to unreached people groups, no matter what nation state they lived in. Even in this brief survey, it's clear, there's never been one single approach to missions among believers. But what I hope is also clear is that Christians have always been missionaries. And the church has always been a missionary 
movement. Church history reminds us that at its best, Christianity goes viral. And it spreads to new peoples and new places. And as this happens, changes inevitably come. As Christianity spread, it pioneered all kinds of new ministries and served others in various ways, including the first hospitals, the first universities, the first insane asylums, and the first orphanages in history. As Christianity spread, it pushed back against social evils, such as different forms of slavery normally. The abuse of women, child labor, oppression of the poor, and in our own day, abortion on demand. As Christianity spread, it spread ideas to new lands, such as political democracy and liberty of conscience and universal literacy. Learn, friends, from the spread of Christianity. Seek to embody the best of this history of Christian missions. Seek to obey the Lord's great commission yourself by making disciples, baptizing them and teaching them to obey all the Lord's commands. When Christianity spreads to, new per- to a new person or to a family or to a community or to a people group or to a nation state, it has often had a ripple effect that continues to move out through multiple generations. I would urge you, as an individual follower of Christ, as perhaps a family of believers, and as a local church, community of disciples, I would urge you to prayerfully and sacrificially throw the right gospel pebbles into the various seas of lostness that the Lord puts before you and see how those ripples move over time as the Lord is faithful to save those whom he's going to save. I hope this talk has helped you to think about some of the ways that we can stand on the shoulders of the saints of old. These are not the only ways that we can stand on the shoulders, but they are some of the ways. The purpose of this first talk has been to stand up and to take a look down at sort of the uh, 40,000-foot view of church history and some general lessons we can learn. In the next talk, we're going to put boots to the ground, and I'm going to focus on one particular theme in church history, zero in on one particular story, and show how it's relevant for today. And what I hope is, by the time we get to the end of the evening, if you're not already convinced, Maybe you're one of those weird people who thinks that history is boring. I don't know why God makes people like you, but he continues to do that. Maybe maybe you're one of those people. What I hope is, by the end of our time together, uh, you're going to see that church history really does matter. And it doesn't just matter for God, it matters for you. And you'll be thinking about ways you can learn from church history, and you'll be going to particular people and themes and movements and trying to, to learn from them, and trusting that the Lord will use that knowledge to make you into the man and woman and family and church that he wants you to be. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the promise that you are building your church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Thank you for those who've gone before us in the faith. Father, they are a reminder to us of so many good things. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to be good stewards of the story of church history, that you would help us to 
learn from their victories and their failures, that you would help us to learn from them as we study the scriptures, but not uncritically so, that we would learn from them, Lord, as we seek to be missionaries, but not uncritically so. And all these things, Lord, we pray for the godly wisdom to make church history the type of conversation partner that we most need to love Christ more, to love each other more, and to love the lost more. All for your glory. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.